Uh, in today's episode of Vince's podcast, I'm recovering extreme wilderness survival stories. And the first one I'm really looking at was by a man named Mauro Prospere, who got lost in the Sahara Desert, but through an excruciating journey, he ended up surviving. But before I look at how he survived, I'm gonna look at how it's just I'm gonna talk about how it's even possible for humans to to survive in the desert. Because basically proteins congeal at temperatures above 112 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet desert temperatures routinely surpass 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So you'd think that given that our brain has a lot of proteins in them, that whenever we go to the desert our we would just our brain would melt and we'd die. But that actually doesn't happen because there are a lot of systems in the body that thermoregulate our temperature, like sweat, which you may have heard of before. But before I talk about sweat, I'm going to talk about how the body even knows it needs to sweat. And this is due to uh, a system that is based on these thermoreceptors, which are uh, basically nerve endings that cover almost your entire body. And so these receptors uh these thermoreceptors send signals uh to the hypothalamus which is the brain's like maintenance center and it also contains the body's thermostat so it, it actively monitors internal body temperature while also like monitoring the signals sent in from the um thermoreceptors which give the uh outside skin temperature basically so when the uh, hypothalamus starts receiving increased signals from these thermoreceptors, it takes control of blood vessels and sweat glands and adjusts their functions to facilitate cooling. So without this alarm set off by changes in skin temperature, which are monitored by the thermoreceptors, then the hypothalamus would be unable to react to an increase in core body temperature until like after it occurred, which would be very dangerous because a four degree differential is enough to disrupt the body's functions and in, in some situations like enough to kill you so now that you know like how uh the body knows to sweat we can actually talk about sweat so basically um sweat the process cools you down because when the water hits your um as when the water evaporates on your skin it draws it's a cooling process that draws heat away from the body and then vaporizes it into the air and so there's also blood cooling but sweat can dissipate heat 20 times faster than blood cooling and so there are about 3 million sweat glands that are distributed unevenly on the skin but like most of them are on like your forehead your face and like your armpits just any area that benefits the most from cooling uh and basically two-thirds of the body of the human body is comprised of water and the average person contains about 50 liters of fluid and loses a minimum of like around two liters in like daily body maintenance so whether that be like sweating or other things and so when the body turns on its sweat glands the water losses like ramp up like very rapidly so the um, so the hypothalamus which i talked about earlier controls both the number of glands activated and at the rate which the sweat pours out and so sweating is a very like it's a it's just like a waste of water especially in like survival situations and basically once your body is down uh five liters then fatigue and dizziness set in five liters of water that is and then a loss of 10 liters disturbs vision and hearing and sets off convulsions and then when you lose like 15 to 20 liters which is like a third of the body's total amount of water you die and, and that's about it
And there are other things like exercise, anxiety, which greatly increase sweating. So and all of which are present in the desert. And so also walking and, and other stuff like that. So now that you know how it seems like almost impossible to survive in the desert, given that almost everything is going against you, we can look at uh, Prospero's uh, story. So basically, he was an ultra marathon runner. And there was a marathon guy was going through the desert. And on uh, one of the days, a sandstorm hit. And he just kept running, thinking he was running in the right direction. But by the time he could see again, he realized he had no no clue where he was. So the morning after the sandstorm, he climbed to the top of a pretty high sand dune. And he saw no trace of a trail, no support truck, or a camp. So he basically realized he was lost. And um, so he, on that first day, uh, he kind of just waited there. And... Uh, he saw like a search helicopter pass overhead. He waved at it frantically, but it, it just didn't see him. And so then he fell asleep uh, at the top of this same dune that he spent the entire day on. And the next morning, he gazed out and saw nothing but like the sun and the sand. There was no no helicopter coming down to pick him up. And basically, he knew that the sun would most likely kill him within a day or two. And he also had no water or shade or even food. So he kind of just started wandering around aimlessly. And after about a couple hours or so, he spotted a small structure off in the distance and made his way towards it. And it turned out to be an empty Muslim shrine. And basically, this like uh, human imperative to get out of the sun is also shared by other animals. Because he found that he was sharing this shelter with a colony of bats. And... What is interesting about that is because he was very hungry and thirsty and basically his survival instinct activated in that moment. So he climbed up uh, under the roof, grabbed two of the sleeping bats and then just twisted their heads off. And he basically sucked their blood dry to get hydrated, which blood also has a lot of nutrients and he just ate them raw. So basically it had only been two days in the desert, yet he already turned into basically an opportunistic predator. So at the dawn of the fourth day of his time stuck in the desert, a plane flew over the shrine. And it, it didn't spot the Italian flag he had taken from his pack and hung on a pole, nor the SOS he had traced in the sand. And because of this, he basically just went into a state of like complete despair. And he even became suicidal. And he tried to slash his wrists with his survival knife, but he was so dehydrated and his blood was so thick that it just oozed out slightly and then clotted almost immediately, causing very little harm to him because he, he, he can't bleed out. And But luckily, as the sun set, the air cooled down his brain and his instinct to survive came back. So he thought about it and realized that he could see mountains along the horizon. And this made him remember that the finish line for the ultramarathon that he was a part of was located at the foot of a mountain range. So he set out for this mountain range. And this was like a super last-ditch effort. He had no clue if it was the right mountain range, but he still had to take that chance. So the next day, he walked out in the early morning before the sun could just beat down on him. And so, but in the afternoon, he shielded himself against like a cliff within a cave or even beneath a tree. Uh, to cool down and then in the evening he resumed his march and at night he dug a pit uh, in the sand to keep warm 
And so far, his like survival had been a unique combination of like primal animal behavior mixed with like basically little uh, tidbits of civilization he still carried. So he quenched his thirst by chewing on towelettes and then licking the morning dew off of uh, basically rocks. And then he, in a dried up riverbed, he dug up some grass and then sucked on the, the roots, which were still wet and provided a little bit of water. He also drank his own urine, but then he also saved some of it to boil a pack of freeze-dried food in his, in his, uh, with his portable burner. He also ate beetles and plants, even a mouse, which he killed using a homemade slingshot uh, using a stick and a bungee cord. And so every day after that, he slowly progressed towards these mountains, except in the end, they were the wrong mountains. So on the fifth day, uh, Prospery spotted water. So he moved towards it, hopefully, with uh, enthusiasm, which uh, he knew it was a chance it could be that it might not be real. But sure enough, the water just always seems to evaporate right before he got to it, and he was never able to like, actually touch it or uh, drink it. And so the, the thing about this is it wasn't even a bra his brain that was playing tricks on him. It was just the desert atmosphere. So a mirage is an optical phenomenon that exists not that exists outside the brain it, it can be photographed so a ray of light will bend as it crosses the boundary between two transparent mediums of different densities so kind of like a imagine a pencil as a beam of light and picture how it looks from the side of a half-filled glass of water this is how like the this is how a lens bends and focuses light and then also like why fish underwater like uh, are closer than they appear to be so the same phenomenon occurs when a large layer of air wrapped over the desert surface is superheated which and then expands drastically, becoming far less dense than the air layer above it. And so the radical difference in these densities bends the incoming light rays severely so that they're nearly parallel to the ground. And by the time they reach the observer, which in this case happened to be Prospery, the image is projected onto his forward-looking eyes uh, actually originates uh, from the light overhead. And so the brain interprets light rays as if they're traveling a straight path. So the patch of sky above is seen as a pool of water in the sand ahead. So not until the eighth day did Prospery stumble into a, a wadi, which is a dried up riverbed that I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, that actually contained uh, like real water, like a little puddle. And by the time, uh, by this time, his mouth and throat were so swollen that he couldn't even swallow and just straight up vomited his first drink. So only by taking a very, very small sip every couple of minutes could he keep the water down. So he just lie, laid alongside the puddle all day and all night, periodically licking at the muddy liquid. And then he, the next morning, he set off again. So a day later, he came across uh, fresh goat droppings and then small human footprints, and then finally an eight-year-old girl who's making the footprints and tending the goats. The girl screamed, like, just completely screamed at the sight of this, like, basically carcass that was tumbling towards her and ran off. And But soon after, she reappeared with her grandmother, who led uh, Prosperi into their uh, encampment. And so it turns out he had actually crossed into Algeria, and he, he was taken uh, by camel, then by truck, to an Algerian military hospital, where doctors reported that the desert that uh, had taken away 33 pounds and, um, from him and 
four gallons of water. So his kidneys were barely functioning and his liver was damaged and he was unable to digest food. His basically his eyes had sunk back into his sockets and his skin was dry and wrinkled. He, he was basically like a tortoise, but he would actually survive. So the military doctors in Morocco said they never before now had they seen anyone survive in the Sahara without water for more than four days. And Prosper E received like a hero's welcome when he finally returned to Italy. But his tale was actually soon challenged by doctors who argued that his story was psychologically impossible. Uh, they basically said that he must have been taken in by some like desert nomad and then uh, restored with and then soon wandered away with a dramatic story to tell but basically there's there's still debate whether or not he still survived but i mean it's a cool story and it's it, it, it could be that the human body is capable of one of us anything so this could be possible but anyways thank you for listening to my podcast and i hope i'll see you on the next episode